This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We have an interesting episode and a little bit different episode this time as we are going to talk about what's wrong with how we teach science. And we have a great guest for today's episode as he has developed Thinking is Power concept, which is challenging how science is being thought. Our guest has over 20 years of teaching experience from college and high high school classrooms and is currently working as an associate professor of biology at Masasui Community College in Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Professor Melanie Tresek-King. Welcome, Melanie. Well, good morning, Ali. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. I don't know. I, I was just reading your institute, and I, don't, I, ha- I understood that I have no idea how to pronounce it. How do you say it correctly? Well, you did an excellent job, Massasoit Community College in Massachusetts, and you did a bang-up job on my name. A lot of people messed that up, so thank you. All right, that's good to hear, or or you are polite, but anyway, good. So, should we start? Would you you like to introduce yourself first? Uh, Sure. So, um, I'm Melanie. I'm originally from Iowa, actually. It's in the middle of the United States, and um, I studied ecology. Um, and when my husband got a job, I moved across the country and got a job teaching at a community college. And I absolutely love the challenge. Um, I get to teach basically full time. Um, I spend a lot of time teaching uh, the non-major science. You know, for most students that aren't going on to be science majors, they take things like baby biology. And I taught that class a lot, really trying to. Um, share with my students how amazing science was and why it was relevant to them. And I tried every way I could think of, and I just kind of thought there's a better way to do this. So I looked and found some great examples and put something together and have something that I then base thinking as power off of. So we can talk more about the class if you like, and obviously thinking is power. That's the short version, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, sounds sounds very interesting, and I think it's it's a really important discussion in the current moment in the world. We see a lot of misinformation, and and kind of social media has democratized who can provide information, and you could think that that's good, and probably it is somehow good, but it seems to also have quite a negative effect. So, uh, yeah, could you tell more about this thinking is power? How do you how do you see its influence? Yeah, so I, let me just back up for a second. And um, I remember trying really hard with IntroBio to... Um, teach my students the things that I thought were relevant to their lives. So for example, um, you know, just didn't cover the cell cycle. It was cancer. So why do you need to know the cell cycle? Well, the cell cycle is an important component of something like cancer. And <clears throat> I still ended up feeling like I was teaching my students to memorize a bunch of facts. And they came to my class 
not liking science. I mean, these were not people who wanted to be scientists. And the vast majority of my students were what I call science phobic. They were just terrified of being there. They didn't want to do it. They were doing it because they had to do it. And I was encouraging them to memorize a bunch of things, regurgitate it for an exam, and then purge it from their brain and leave basically remembering how much they didn't like science. So um, what I decided to do was take a different approach. And um, I now focus on the what I call skills. So science literacy, understanding the process of science and science reasoning, um, critical thinking, um, information literacy, basic skepticism. And I encourage my students to memorize really as little as possible because they can look up facts, right? It's, the question is, can you be a good consumer of information? And if I'm just making this really personal here, I, I kind of feel bad over the years that I taught that class. I mean, it was my own journey to get to where I am, but I don't think I armed students with the ability to understand what we're seeing now with science playing out in real time, right? We have a new virus and new vaccines, and um, we're seeing scientists understanding what's happening and trying to find solutions in real time. And I taught them to memorize things. And so now my goal is actually their final exam is for the last year been coronavirus uh, themed. Basically, can you use what you've learned about how science works, about thinking through claims, about finding good information to make good decisions? And what I was hoping to do is to empower them. So that's why I call it thinking is power. There's just too much to know, right? The, the amount of what we know is ever expanding. The question is, how did we know that? And how can we think through things? And so, of course, there's a time and a place for facts, but I'd rather have them be able to think through things. So um, the website itself is basically based on the course. It was my idea of, um, I've um, put together a curriculum that I think is pretty effective. I've done some testing on it. It does seem to be pretty effective. Um, is there a, um, a, some sort of need for this in the general public, I had hoped there would be. And it turns out there really is. I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised at how many people are interested in presentation of knowledge this way. Um, I'm also writing things for my students to read. So it's basically their textbook. Um, and one step further than trying to um, reach other science educators and just think about how we teach science and ask ourselves, is this the best way to do it? What do most people need to know? And um, how can we do a better job of teaching that? So thinking is power, right? As opposed to knowledge. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think this has been a big shift now as we have Google and we have smartphones, we have fast mobile internet connections. So the world has changed in the last 5, 10, 15 years so much that everything you can just check up. You just need to know where to check up, which information to trust, what kind of conclusions to draw from that data. So I think, I think we really need to consider the change in the world and really rethink the teaching. How, how do you see this? That do, you, do we really need to memorize anything anymore? That's a really good question. Um, I 
think we need to memorize very little, um, which is why I've put the focus on this class. Again, this is non-majors, although I would make a, um, I would make a, a very strong argument for teaching science this way, at least as part of a major's curriculum. But for the general public, um, I don't see why they need to memorize the parts of a cell or the steps of cellular respiration. I mean, those things can easily be looked up. You mentioned something there though that's really important is trust. I, mean, I think most of us don't realize how much of what we know is based on trust. We assume that um, our beliefs are based on evidence. We've thought things through. We've used the evidence and arrived at a conclusion. But actually what we did is we heard it from somebody we trust. We read it from something we trust. And we believed it. If it fits in with our worldview and it you know, confirms what we already believe, then it must be true. And so the question is, are you trusting the right sources? And of the sources that we're trying to figure out to trust, so you know, do we need to memorize things? Not so much. We do need to figure out who, um, what processes are reliable methods of knowing, and how do we find um, what we currently know based on those processes? So learning to trust the process and where that information is best disseminated. Mm. And and what what would you say like? As a researcher, I usually go to see the scientific publication. If somebody says that if you if you eat C vitamin before going to sleep, you cannot you don't sleep as well. So I go to <laughs> scientific articles and see that ah, there's no no evidence of this kind of thing. But scientific articles are difficult to read for general public or someone who's not a scientist. Where would you go? How do people actually know which which thing is trustworthy yeah um i'm gonna say something that's probably pretty provocative amongst science educators which is um i don't think this level of student is one that we should be encouraging to read the scientific literature um so i'm I agree with you entirely. Uh, and I know a lot of science educators, you know, high school science educators or these undergraduate lower divisions. And they will say, well, yeah, I'm teaching my students to think critically and science literacy, uh, teaching them science literacy. I, I have them read scientific literature, right? We read primary peer reviewed articles. And I don't think that's what science literacy is. Um, I And I actually think that's a bit dangerous because you're right, the average person can't read that. I mean, my background is ecology, right? I studied succession on the Great Plains, the role of fire. Like when it comes to mRNA vaccines, like that's not something that I can go to the Journal of Epidemiology and understand really what they're talking about. I may be able to make my way through a paper, um, but I don't really have an understanding of research methodology in that area. I don't have an understanding of the other literature in that area. So I think it's a bit dangerous, actually, to um, um, to teach people that, you know, if you have a question, just the average person, go to the primary literature and read it. You can find anything in the primary literature to support what it is that you think is true, right? The question is, what is the consensus? What does the body of knowledge say? 
And so um, I actually, um, I wrote this post on um, the danger, the problem of doing your own research, right? That's this thing that goes around these days. And it's like, oh, I do my own research. And what most people think is they go to Google and they type something in, they lead Google to an answer, and then they go to the sources that already confirm what it is that they think is true. And, you know, they did their research. They leave even more convinced they were right. As opposed to understanding your limits, right? And that's a hard thing. Understanding what you don't know, having some intellectual humility and, um, yeah, trusting the expert consensus. It goes back to trust again. So I wrote that and it went viral. And then I thought, you know what? People still need to be able to find good information. So if somebody wants to do their own research, how can they, um, how can they do a better job of finding out what it is that we know to the best of our ability to know? So um, I followed that up with, what is the expert consensus? Why is that trustworthy? And then how do you find it? And so um, if you have a question on vaccines, what is the consensus as we best know it look like in the area of, let's say, um, mRNA vaccines? So yeah, I, I think it's important to arm people with the ability to find good information, but again, an understanding of our limits and understanding where the trustworthy information is. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable very valid and incredibly sturdy. I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active and inactive periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good valid information. Fibion, from researchers to researchers. Mm. I, I think it's really interesting because now as I'm thinking of it, where is kind of the easily understandable format? What what sources can you trust? Because I think there's no no source which would directly be. You need to be pretty good in critical thinking to kind of know that can I trust trust this one? Or there's no for the for example, in scientific publications you can see that if it's published in a good journal you can trust it quite well. But from any other kind of more popular, do you, could you say something that these things you can trust by, to like straightforward, like it's that there's some source that you can trust? Um, if only it were that easy. <laughs> that would be really lovely. <laughs> it's not. Um, yeah, when it comes to scientific matters, oh, so... What I found when I was trying to put together how to find the consensus um, is there are some very straightforward consensus studies, and those are great, like climate change has wonderful consensus studies. Um, there's a lot of stuff where there's no like one place where people post, well, here's the scientific consensus on um, you know, vitamin D and health issues. Um, so what I put together for people as a best, most reliable way, um, and this is unfortunate because you do have to know something, is um, so sort of a, a, 
a pyramid of evidence um, in that, um, you know, at the bottom, we have things like um, individual studies and individual studies vary in how much evidence they, um, the quality of evidence. But what does it look like when the evidence is compiled together? So things like systematic reviews and meta-analyses, um, things like um, um, position statements. So, you know, the AMA or the, um, um, you know, various journals will, professional organizations will, um, uh, government agencies will um, put together position statements of this is a compilation of what we currently know and why, you know, importantly. Um, but you'd have to know where to go to find those. So if I'm looking for something like, um, you know, physical education, which I, I know very little about, I'm going to have to understand or find the professional organizations that are the most credible, um, the, the journals that are the most credible. So um, I, I'm going to have to do a bit of understanding of those things to figure out who is the most trustworthy for that particular um, consensus that I'm after. So yeah, um, it's not easy, but um, it's still better, I suppose, than trying to put together things on your own. Hmm. And and also, I think that it's interesting to think that, for example, researchers, they don't usually get more money depending on what they say. They still have the same salary, while many others who, who are selling something or, or are social media influencers, you see that they they get money somehow by saying those things that are popular or usually against the popular consensus because it's it's kind of rebel or I, I don't know exactly what's the reason but would you approach it somehow in a way that do you see that there's somebody making money out of these these opinions yeah that's really frustrating because it seems that um you know the biggest disinformation pushers um often are either some form of medical doctor or like tangential to it um, and they make incredible amounts of money by um, convincing people that other people are out to get their money. <laughs> and I just like, I, I don't understand. I want to pull everybody aside and say, you know, I know you think that climate change researchers are all in some big conspiracy for money, but you know what? This person drives a used Honda and lives in an apartment, you know, and here is, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. He's one of the disinformation dozen and he's worth like a hundred million dollars. Right. And so who here is really after your money? So what they do is they, um, they convince people that there's some sort of conspiracy and, um, um, that others are in some sort of, um, yeah, they're conspiring to get your money. I, I, to be honest, I don't understand how people reconcile that in their head that, you know, like this person's not out to get my money, but they are. And all the world scientists are somehow conspiring. But this person here who, you know, has their own private jet, they are out for my interests. That's a, that's an interesting point. So you should believe the one who's driving a Honda. Did I understand <laughs> correctly? <laughs> The ones yeah. paying back their student loans for decades are the ones that you can probably trust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, it seems that it's it is actually very challenging to teach people that 
what they trust. For us, as we have been doing research, we have been, we are into it. It's kind of, it comes naturally in a way. We are very critical for the knowledge and most of the time we do it just without even noticing how we do it. But then when you try to actually teach someone or or explain it, it's it's very challenging. Uh, how how frustrated you are sometimes trying to teach this and and it's actually very challenging. It is very challenging. Um, I will say that I I am not frustrated in the class itself. I don't have a lot of frustrations, and I think the reason is. Well, they're captive first, right? They they want to grade, so they have to at least listen. Um, but I think that um, the way that I've structured the course, um, I spend a lot of time breaking them down <laughs> in a nice way and getting them to understand how their brain leads them astray and then getting them to um, a better way of knowing. So, for example... I start class. I'm hoping none of my students um, are listening until, you know, after we finish this. When I start class, um, literally the first thing I do is I fool them. Um, The first day I give them what I call personality assessments. And I make this whole big ruse. Like it turns out I'm a really good liar. So I've created this character who's an astrologer and she's written books and she does numerology. And she, she's offered to, you know, because this is a test, a class where um, we're testing things. It's the science class, it's skepticism. We're going to see how accurate she is. And so I have them fill out this, you know, list of questions so that she can figure out their personality. And then I give them their readings and um, I ask them on a scale of one to five, how accurate was she? And the vast majority of students will say in the range of four. Um, so four out of five, very accurate. Some will say like six or seven. And um, then I put them in small groups and I say, okay, um, if you're comfortable, talk to each other about your reading, maybe Pull out some things that you thought were um, really applicable to you and, you know, try to think about how she might have been able to learn this about you. And they talk and seriously, sometimes this takes 10 or 15 minutes. And then they realize they all got the same reading, right? Because <laughs> of course, and I apologize. And, you know, yes, I lied to you the very first day of class. And No, I can't promise I won't do that again, because that's kind of the point. Um, but if you fell for this, why? And, you know, well, um, these are Barnum statements and, um, you know, I appealed to authority and I primed them and they were using confirmation bias. And, you know, you thought this was uh, applicable to you, but somebody else thought something else, right? All this to say, if I just told you I could fool you, you wouldn't necessarily believe me. Like no one likes to think they can be fooled. But we can all be fooled. That's the point, right? So I start by going through this process of fooling them to prove to them that they can be fooled. And then once I fooled them, okay, let's talk about how we would come to believe things. So I move on to um, the very first section is um, witches and I talk about, you know, the the witch trials and um, how people were convinced that witches were um, causing storms and birth defects and, you know, politicians to lose elections and so on. And and why were they so convinced, right? They were sure they were right. 
They believed this very strongly, right? Was that good evidence? Okay, what kinds of things do you believe? Why do you think you believe that? Could you be wrong? And so by using something like witches, I mean, most of my students don't believe in witches. Some do, but most of them don't. So it's a safer belief, one that doesn't necessarily trigger them. They can, from a bit of a distance, reflect on people really believe this and they were almost assuredly wrong. And why would they believe that? Right. And so um, by going through the course in this structured way of um, first trying to show them how illogical their brain is. Um, and then I, I don't actually get to the process of science until after the midterm, because I spent all of that time building up a justification for science, right? If you just jump into the scientific method and then present it like a recipe, you know, I mean, no science works in that way, but that's how we present at the beginning of all science textbooks. And so if I just start there and I don't give them a justification for all of the irrational ways that we come to believe things, what is a more reliable way of knowing than I, I mean, to me, it, it misses the point. Um, and it misses a great opportunity for students to understand just in real life, how their brain, you know, convinces them of things that isn't necessarily true. So I use a lot of pseudoscience. Um, like we do Bigfoot and, um, um, homeopathy, <laughs> um, uh, oh, I teach them how to cold read like psychics. So. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great, great way of doing that. You fool, fool them a bit that they kind of really understand that it's, it's, it's not that difficult even like you even had the same text for everyone in, in this one. Um, yeah, it's. I, I think it's. It's very, very interesting. How do you? How do you then go? You explained basically to midterm. What What do you then do? How do you teach them to think critically? What kind of information to trust? How 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 does that process go in the in the course? Yeah. So um, after um, the discussion of witches and how we come to believe things, um, so critical thinking is like how do you tackle that beast, right? Um, it is really difficult to teach, you're right. And actually, if I if I might go back to a personal here, um, you know, I assumed all of those years that I was teaching critical thinking. It's science. Science involves critical thinking inherently. So of course, if I'm teaching science, I'm teaching critical thinking. And it wasn't until I directly taught critical thinking that I realized that I was not teaching critical thinking. So I had to go through my own journey and now I realized that I, again, I feel like I let my students down, but um, I give them a toolkit. Um, so um, it, the current toolkit that I use was um, published in Skeptical Inquirer in uh, 1990. Um, I'm actually writing an update. Hopefully it's going to be um, out this year. But the toolkit is um, a series of, of rules that um, um, one can methodically go through when evaluating a claim. So things like, is it falsifiable? Um, is it logical? Does it commit any logical fallacies? Um, 
Are you being honest with yourself? Actually, that's the biggest one because, you know, we often, when we're looking at the body of evidence, we find the evidence that supports what we want to believe and we find ways to discount the evidence that doesn't support what we want to believe. But so are we being honest with ourselves and are we looking at the body of evidence in a comprehensive way? Um, is the evidence sufficient for the claim? Um, you know, is the, the evidence reproducible? Um, so I give them the toolkit. And, you know, it, it is still a conceptually challenging toolkit, um, but I use it all semester. So I introduce it early and then I have them um, evaluate claims with it all semester long. So we start with things like crystal healing, you know, and we do it sort of in a structured way. And then we do, you know, psychics and um, we um, move on to things like... Um, so we end with um, like Herbalife, uh, various MLMs. Um, but I, I give them um, things that they probably believe or they've come in contact with in their lives. Um, and they use the toolkit to practice. And I build on it all semester, right? As they practice it and get better, we can um, go a bit more deep into some of the concepts. But I, I do think the structure is important and the practice is important. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.